Hey boys and girls, just wanted to take a minute to let you know that they have their definitive Lawcast archive on YouTube for you guys to enjoy. Go to youtube.com backslash user backslash reviews or just search on YouTube to find the Lawcast and all of our episodes past the last 20 or so are going to be there from now on. Get it? Got it? Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Lawcast. This week, the March to WrestleMania continues as we tackle one of the most disastrous and poorly received storylines in WWE history. It's WrestleMania 7, Stars and Stripes Forever. This show is kind of a celebration of all the best things in wrestling and all the worst things in wrestling at the same time. How to create good heat and how to create bad heat. It's almost like a textbook you could open and show future bookers like, hey, here on the show you have half good things and half bullshit things and you need to avoid the bad things or else you'll go out of business in a hurry. As always with WrestleMania, it's a story of hubris and greed, but in this case they found themselves wallowing in the muck of avarice. Um, They had the ambition to fill the LA Coliseum, a 100,000-seat stadium. This was a very bad idea. Is there any match they could have possibly put on in 1991 that would have filled this place? Absolutely not. Not only is there no match, but like we've kind of talked over the past couple of WrestleManias that they're kind of... While the WrestleManias themselves and the main events are great, they're actively killing off their future business. So, like, the Ultimate Warrior gets a run, and it's a disaster. But they have to do it because he's getting so over by that point. But that kind of cut off Savage's run, so he's not hot anymore. Hogan hasn't really had anybody great to feud with since Warrior because they were trying to push Warrior. So in the meantime, you've lessened Hogan. Warrior didn't work. Savage isn't as big of a star, and he's a heel now. There's nobody that's that at that tippy-top big place, not even Hogan. So not only is there no match, there's arguably not even a real WrestleMania main event here. No, nothing really jumps out at me. The original plan was Hogan versus Tugboat. Uh, Tugboat having been introduced as Hogan's friend uh, during the Earthquake storyline when Earthquake had taken out Hogan, Tugboat (laughs) would come out and give updates on Hogan's health. I think this kind of explains why Hogan Earthquake was SummerSlam, because they were building towards Tugboat turning on Hogan and that being the WrestleMania main event. And then later, once the conflict with Iraq came in, they got the idea of Sheik Tugboat. I just want you to hear those words in your head, like kind of bouncing Sheik tugboat, not a CHIC tugboat, which is a very fashionable tugboat, which yes. I would have been all for. But Sheik tugboat, here's the thing. Do you think that it's possible to have this work with like a white guy playing the heel? I think Slaughter pulled this off better than anyone else could have. Like I'll say of all the things I'm critical of, like Slaughter's promos are really strong. I think his performance is good. He seems psychotic, but yes. it's just his problem is he's just so old and fat and bald. I don't think he comes off at all like a physical threat to Hulk Hogan. Right. 
And like, look, I, I love Tugboat or Uncle Fred, as some call him. I, I just, I, I really wanted to him to have to have a decent run, but I don't know where the idea of the best friend of Hulk Hogan betrays him storyline comes from. And because they've run this storyline multiple times, and it was a huge success with both Savage and Paul Orndorff. But here's the thing: you can't just introduce a friend of Hulk Hogan out of nowhere and then have him turn on him in the same year. That doesn't mean anything. There's no time for it to invest. If they had done this with Beefcake and made Sheik Beefcake, maybe there's something there. Sheik Beefcake, really? (laughs) So. Yeah, I think we've established nothing they were going to do was going to fill this stadium. But they had the very ill-advised idea that we can make heat out of the American conflict with Iraq. Uh, This begins August 2nd, 1990, when Iraq invades its neighbor, Kuwait. Um, The reasons behind this are complicated, but mostly an oil grab by Iraq and a desire by Iraqi President Saddam Hussein to kind of flex his muscle over the region and make Iraq uh, the regional superpower. Um, The United States immediately deploys military forces to Saudi Arabia to prevent Iraq from invading Saudi Arabia, which if they had done that, I believe they would have controlled a majority of the world's oil reserves, which is not a tenable situation. So, we have this tension between America and Iraq. It's not clear if there's going to be war, but it seems like a real possibility. Um, President George Bush Sr. declares that you know, this will not stand, you know, draws the hypothetical line in the sand, demands that Iraq withdraw from Kuwait, and sets a deadline. Meanwhile, in Vince McMahon's sick, demented brain, he has an idea. And it just so happens that the opportunity for the perfect man to play the part has fallen into his lap because Sergeant Slaughter is ready to bail on the AWA as they have finally gone out of business. And he writes a letter to Vince praising WrestleMania six and, you know, asking if he wants to talk business and Vince has an idea for Sarge. Vince's idea for Sarge turn heel against the very concept of your character, which is the all-American GI soldier sergeant, and turn heel and become an Iraqi sympathizer. Now, it doesn't immediately start as an Iraqi sympathizer. First, he's just anti-American. The idea is just Americans have become soft since I've been gone. You've fallen away from the way that I taught you when you were kids. This is crap. Why are you not booing all the foreign heels anymore? Why has That's wrestling a totally changed? character beat, I think. I think that actually would have been fine. Yeah, I think that's as far as you really need to go with it. Yeah, just, just like this disillusioned, you know, former military guy can't adjust to the Cold War being over. And you can have him subtly, it's just like he's jealous of Hogan, that Hogan is considered the American hero, when in reality, you know, Sarge served his country, fought for his country, put his life on the line for the country. Honestly, I think you could go with that exact storyline. And not only do you have a good storyline, but you have one that could potentially draw because that makes sense. And the other thing, too, is that Sergeant Slaughter's specialty was these kind of super personal storylines like this. 
like followed up by an incredibly brutal brawl at the end. Like he had those those boot camp brawls with like Sheik and some other people that were like some viciously brutal matches. That's the kind of thing that you need to do if you're going to make Slaughter versus Hogan work. But Vince just falls in love with this idea of the Iraqi sympathizer. Yeah, and we should mention Sergeant Slaughter is a gigantic star at this point. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest stars, not in the WWF, I'd say. Like outside he of was Flair, on, maybe maybe the biggest because yeah, G, because of the GI Joe thing. Yeah, he was on GI Joe. He was one of the GI Joes. Everyone knew yeah. the GI Joes. He was invited to the White House by Ronald Reagan. I mean, it was to the extent where like he would actually show up at like military functions and stuff. He was he was like the celebrity military guy. Yeah. So. I, he's been one of the, he, you know, he was a big star in the WWF. He left in 85 because he got the GI Joe deal and Vince wanted some of the money from it. And Sarge wasn't willing to do that. So they part ways. And at the time he left, I would say he was as big a star as Hogan because this is before WrestleMania, before Hogan becomes a mega star. At that point, Sarge was as big a star as they had. Yeah, I'd say that's definitely true. And so now, after years in the AWA, he is returning home. Um, you know, we've covered kind of a couple legs of the storyline, both his uh, pay-per-view return at SummerSlam <coughs> 1990, where he was on the Brother Love show, and then his win at Survivor Series 1990. Um, around the time of Survivor Series, on November 29th, the... UN Security Council passes a resolution giving Iraq until January 15th to pull out of Kuwait and authorized member states to use any means necessary to force their compliance. This is, a, I mean, this is war if they don't pull out. Um, right. Unfortunately, the WBF perhaps not having politically savvy advisors, as we would later see demonstrated by Linda McMahon's Senate runs, did not recognize the very strong possibility that America was, in fact, going to go to war here. So they proceeded with the storyline. And let's just talk about the difference between doing this with a villain from a war that's 10 years old and doing this with a villain who's actively part of an ongoing military conflict. Like, what would you say is the biggest problem with doing it that way, as opposed to waiting until the war is 10 years old and just putting on a German heel? Uh, people are actually dying. Exactly. Like people know people who are overseas in danger, might know people who have been killed. Yeah, it's one thing to prey on people's memories of a conflict that they won and is over. And it's another thing to be like, hey, my brother just died yesterday. Oh, here's Sergeant Slaughter saying Iraqis are great. Like that's totally different. Yeah, like anti-American villains go back a long way. I mean, I've heard... Hans Schmidt called the first. He was on the Dumont network in the 1950s. He was a German Nazi. Of course, I think he was actually a French Canadian or something. <laughs> you know. the, the, the tradition starts there. A, a, lot of, a lot of the Russians were actually Canadians, I mean, vaguely foreign. But, I mean, you can go all the way back to George Hackenschmidt. I mean, the whole idea of the American boy versus the foreign heel, I mean, it's as old as wrestling is. It's just basic. It's not. It's it's an easy thing to grasp. Right. Um, you know, wrestling plays on those primal instincts, and nationalism is one of them. Um, we have Japanese villains. We have Russians. We have the Iron Sheik, the Iranian, 
The Iron Sheik is an interesting one because he was around during the Iran hostage crisis. He was wrestling in the Carolinas, but they didn't give him, like, you know, they could have given him a monster push and put the world title on him and had him wave the Iranian flag, but they didn't do any of that just because they didn't want to play with fire. Right. Which is why, it, which is weird because. Now we're a couple of years later, and Vince has totally bought in on the idea. And I wonder what changed. Well, he didn't have Sheik during the hostage crisis. Sheik was in the Carolinas at that. Oh, point. I guess I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Um, so on January eighth, President Bush asks Congress to authorize him to use force against Iraq. Uh, the declaration, the <coughs> not declaration, but the the resolution passes the House and Senate on January the twelfth. And on January the 16th, President Bush announces the beginning of airstrikes against the Iraqi military. Uh, just days later, at the 1991 Royal Rumble, we've got Sergeant Slaughter against the Ultimate Warrior for the WWF title. And we come to a very key decision point here. They don't have to put the belt on Slaughter. They can easily say, okay, we're actually dropping bombs over there, you know, People are in harm's way. Let's pump the brakes on this and have Warrior keep the belt and do something else for WrestleMania. I wonder, I mean, you can even do this whole storyline without the belt. Like Hulk and Slatter don't even actually need the title. Like that's what makes it so curious to me that they do this because it's kind of a strike against the Ultimate Warrior to do this here. Though that this also comes after them trying to figure out a way to get the belt off of Warrior, which is another part of this. I I think they should have just kept the belt on Warrior and done it. Pro it screws up the rest of the card. But Hogan Warrior Two would have been a perfectly fine match to headline. Well, I mean, I don't think it would have done great business, but it wouldn't have been as bad as what ended up happening. I feel like there's an alternate version of this show where it's main evented by Warrior versus Savage, Courier versus Title, and it it works exactly the same except the show ends better. Yeah, that, that would have been fine, too. But, but, but. <laughs> no, no, the road not taken. Slaughter wins the title after Randy Savage interferes. Uh, first, he hits Warrior with, like, a lighting rig, and that's not enough. So then he smashes his scepter over Warrior's head in what looks like one of the nastiest shots anybody's ever taken. Yeah, it's actually one of like the great like using a weapon moments that I can ever remember from my childhood, just being like, oh my god, it looks like he's dead! Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that thing was made of, but it looks like he knocked the fuck out of him with it. Yeah, it looked great. Um, yeah, it's, it's a surreal moment when Slaughter wins. Piper's actually great on commentary, because he's just like, no, no, they can't let this stand. No, no. But they do. But no they do. In, no replay in the WWF. Uh, sadly. Sadly, it would only be some 20 years later when a ref would finally say, hey, wait, maybe I could rewatch this. I, I believe this is where they were going to burn the American flag. Um, I, they don't do it. Instead, they have Mean Gene say that Sergeant Slaughter is desecrating the American flag, but they don't show it. I will contend that if they had shown Sergeant Slaughter burning the American flag, 
the company would have ended up going out of business. Not immediately, but that combined with all the other problems they would have in the next couple of years would have been too much. They would have gone under. Oh, yeah, because you have to understand is that at the same time, the whole steroid issue is kind of creeping into public knowledge and into Congress and stuff like that. And that will eventually kind of hit Pater like a couple of years later. But if they had had literal footage of on WWE cameras them burning the American flag, how much harder do you think that they would have been on the WWE when it came to that kind of thing? How much more likely would it be that the, all their sponsors pull out, that all of their network help pulls out, that their pay-per-view providers pull out? Like That's all it takes in order to kill a company of this type. It's just to pull all their support. And I, don't, I can't think of anything more likely to cause sponsors and TV people to pull support than burning an American flag during an active war. Yeah. We see how much heat the NFL has gotten from the national anthem protests, and that has an additional racial component to it that this wouldn't have had. Right. But burning a flag is a lot worse than not standing during the national anthem. I mean, let's be clear. Like, people have been like beaten in the streets for burning flags. People have been thrown in jail without cause for burning flags. It was a crime. Yes. Until shortly before this point, when the Supreme Court ruled it violated someone's First Amendment right to have a law against it. Attempts to amend the Constitution um, to ban burning the American flag have fallen short by just one vote in Congress in the past. So, I mean, we're talking about something that is a very, 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 very serious deal in the minds of basically the entire American public and the judicial system. And they were just going to do that shit on TV. I just, I would love to get inside the head of it. I think it's just desperation. I think it's just, the, they, they can feel that the business is not as strong as it had been. Right. And they're, they're chasing it at this point. I think you're right. Like, as we said, there's not much going on here. All of the top stars they spent the last half of the 80s building, Hulk's getting older and he's getting a little stale. Savage is now a heel. He's not as big of a star. Ultimate Warrior didn't work and they kind of put all their money and effort into him and there's nobody following after those guys. They had two shots at replacing Hogan and neither one worked. And now who's left? Beefcake? Yeah. Um, they've got nothing. The, the, the response to this is terrible. Slaughter gets death threats. Vince gets death threats. There are bomb threats at every arena they're running. Um, Vince ends up paying for Slaughter to have both a bodyguard drive him around and also 24 hours security for Slaughter's family. They were so concerned about the threats. And Slaughter claims that he wrestled in a bulletproof vest. And... He doesn't seem like a bullshitter to me, although this is like the only thing anyone ever asks him about. Yeah, I, I mean, it's probably true. Like you could absolutely wear a bulletproof vest oh, under yeah. the things that he wears. I just, yeah, serious, like serious shit here. The, the heat here was real. It was going way too far. But the heat, very importantly, was not on Slaughter specifically so much as it was, hey, you're an asshole for going along with this. How dare you portray this while we're going through this conflict? Yeah, that's the thing. I, nobody, I don't think anybody thinks that Sergeant Slaughter is actually an Iraqi sympathizer. I think everybody sees through this as a cynical publicity stunt. Yeah, but everybody's reaction is, Bob, how could you do this? 
Yeah, the heat is on the actual person and the company, and that's not productive. That doesn't sell tickets. Absolutely not. Um, they get tons of bad publicity. They're denounced in newspaper editorials. Bob Costas pulls out of WrestleMania, which he was supposed to make an appearance at. This is the beginning of a long-running feud between Vince, him and Vince McMahon, which would hilarious cul- hilariously culminate in the 2001 HBO Real Sports interview. Which, if you've never seen that interview, oh that's your God. homework for today, boys and girls. They that, come real close to blows there. Let's be clear. Like, they make Frost Nixon look like an Entertainment Tonight interview. Like, that, they hate <laughs> each other. It feels like if you were going to drop the pers- perfect person to get under Vince McMahon's skin, it would be Bob <laughs> Costas. Oh, God. Yeah. Bob Costas is just another version of Vince McMahon. <laughs> <laughs> He's just a sophisticated version of Vince McMahon. Without all the crazy redneck upbringing. Yeah, Vince McMahon's just a redneck version of Bob Costas. Oh, and he must hate that. Yeah, that's what he can't stand. Um, so by February, it's becoming clear there is no fucking chance they're selling out the Coliseum, and they're not even going to come close. Um, depending on who you believe, they had sold either 14,000 or 20,000 tickets six weeks out. Um, at the time, the 20,000 number was reported in the Wrestling Observer, but I've heard Meltzer say that uh, basically he got worked by the WWF and that they were putting out false advances and the actual number was more like 14,000. In either case, that's a minuscule fraction of what they needed to sell to even make this look decent. The thing with the Coliseum is... It's gigantic and there's no levels. It's just seats straight up. Um, when it's not full, it looks terrible. If you've ever seen a USC football game from <laughs> when they're having a bad season, it looks real bad in there. There's just no way to cover it. Oh, God, yeah. Aren't the Rams playing there this year? Yeah, Did- the Rams are in L- back in L.A. now and playing there until they get their new stadium open. And, like They don't fill it worth a fucking goddamn. No, even being good. And it, it looks horrible. It looks horrible. Yeah, it's just it's you can't curtain a stadium like this. Like, yeah, there's no getting around it. It will look horrible. So facing, I mean, with fourteen or twenty thousand tickets sold, if you paper it heavily, maybe you could get to like fifty or sixty thousand, but that would still look like shit in that building. So they have to pull the plug now. Yeah. The official narrative remains that it was because of security concerns what what do you make of that i mean do you buy the idea that it was going to be so expensive to secure and they were going to have to pick up the tab for it any credence to that i think that that's something that could be true and is not true at the same time like, I also think if they were going to, if they if they were actually on track to sell out the stadium, they would have just paid for the security because they would have been able to afford to out of the exactly. gate. Exactly. I think that they absolutely were told by security advisors and by the arena staff, like, "Hey, this is what it's going to cost to fully secure this because you're having bomb threats." And they were like, "Well, fuck it. We're not going to do this if we can't even fill the place anyway. We need to bail on this." Yeah, but. They continue to maintain the cover story that this was because of security problems. 
in both the true story of WrestleMania DVD and the 30 years of WrestleMania book, that is the story. In the 30 years of WrestleMania book, Vince claims uh, it was not the right thing, not, not the right patriotic thing to do in terms of going to the big venue. We had to pull things back to an indoor venue where we could control things better because this was art imitating life. I have no idea what, what this the, was what not is the he right talking about. What patriotic thing to do? What is it? What? How to, does that make it? The big outdoors. So we had to, we had to we had to bring it in where we could control things better in the indoor venue. Now there was a rumor for the longest time, and I kind of grew up with this rumor that there had been a bomb threat on the LA Coliseum, and that's why they didn't go there. There was no bomb threat. That's not a real thing. Well, there may there may have been bomb threats, but th- that sounds like there was a bomb threat like the day of the show. Right. And they're like, we have to do it in the stadium instead. That's They moved the show six weeks out. It was mid-February they announced the change. Although they didn't really announce the change other than in L.A. because everywhere else they just stopped saying L.A. Coliseum and instead promoted WrestleMania's coming to L.A. It was only on the LA syndicated TV that they said LA college that um, the show will be at the LA sports arena instead of the Coliseum. I actually think it's pretty incredible that when we watched WrestleMania six, they actually still have on the network them yeah. saying, we're going to be at the LA Coliseum. Like, no, you're not. Why, yeah, why is that still there? Like this? Yeah. Considering how obsessive they are about scrubbing things. I'm surprised that has survived. Yeah. I'm not really sure why. Um, so obviously this causes gigantic logistical problems. Um, regardless of how many tickets they had sold, they're, they're now moving to an arena with a totally different configuration. Like in a dome stadium, you've got, I think, I think they had 40 seats in the front row they were going to have at the stadium and only 20 at the, and only 20 at the sports arena. So they're shuffling everybody around. You've also got people who bought seats in the very upper deck for 10 bucks who are now instead going to get a seat um, in the sports arena, which would have gone for like five times that. That's pretty incredible to me that like that there's no sort of organization for how that whole thing worked, like the ticket exchange. And weren't there like thousands of people who like didn't even bother to turn their tickets in. They just don't show up to the show. Yes. Well, if you believe the 20,000 number, then probably, I mean, this whole thing is a clusterfuck. Like they've either, sold thousands more tickets than they actually end up using. The, the other thing being, there were still empty, they were giving away tickets the weekend of the show because either they hadn't sold enough tickets or people hadn't claimed their tickets. But also they were empty seats, yes, because people hadn't claimed their tickets and they didn't know how many they had to give away. It's just the worst of all worlds. Yeah, that's incredible to me that they would... How do you not see this coming at all? hubris yeah they just they'd, they'd conquered every hill they, they they'd always pulled it off before this this <coughs> is the first time they try something and really really fail yeah that's the key word fail because wrestlemania six times in a row had been an incredible amount of hubris and they keep pushing and pushing and pushing adding new things trying new things and it had always been a success before everything they tried even if it was relatively disappointing to what they expected it was still a massive success this is the first failure and it won't be the last (laughs) and then we add in another disaster they run the main event on nbc in february it draws a 6.7 rating with 10.3 million viewers 
That's by far the worst number they had ever drawn on NBC. That was the 74th most watched program of the week. Uh. And to put it in context, the previous Saturday night's main event special from November had drawn an 8.6, and that was without Hogan on the show. Okay, but what was the main event of this show? Uh, the main event of this show was, well, there were a couple matches, but the two big ones were Hogan and Tugboat against Dino Bravo and Earthquake and Sergeant Slaughter versus Jim Duggan. I mean, that's a trash heap of a show. Yeah, it really is. Uh, yeah, h- hard to believe nobody tuned in to see that. And here's the thing, like when you have such an anti-American hero as, or villain as you do with Sergeant Slaughter, you're kind of pigeonholed into the storylines you can run at the top. Like, well, I guess he's got to run with Duggan for a while, even though Duggan's well past his prime and nobody's really that interested in him. And then I guess it's on to Hogan. It's like your whole show gets pigeonholed into this one thing. And then you can't really move around outside of it because you have to aim it at Slaughter. It sucks. I, I think the other context to put this in is just the wave of patriotism that was sweeping the country at this point. I mean, mm-hmm. I, w- I was very young when this happened, so I don't really have memories of it. I've just seen kind of documentaries covering it. it there, there was just, so, I mean, I, it was probably similar to after 9-11. Suddenly everybody is flying the American flag. Everybody yeah. is wearing American flag t-shirts. There's just this outpouring of patriotism. Yeah. I was about five years old, and I vividly remember American flags literally everywhere. Yeah, I just, they they are so totally misreading the public mood at this point. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to have the American hero triumph, but they even could have done a foreign villain, an anti-American villain, but not a pro-Iraqi villain when we're going to war with Iraq. I'd say that's almost where the metaphor is, like... At this point, maybe you have Hogan feud with, and I'm not really seriously suggesting this, but like the Mountie, who's a foreign villain who hates America, but he's not actually an Iraqi trying to bring down the American government. Like, you get the same sense as you would without actively pissing people off. So at at the end of the main event, they announce Hogan will challenge Slaughter for the title at WrestleMania. On February 24th, after months of bombing, Uh, The ground war begins. Uh, The coalition forces led by the United States drive Iraq back into its own territory within three days. The war is a total rout. The war is over. And thank God it was because the level of calamity this could have been for the WWF if this had actually gone bad for the United States and we had actually sustained a large number of casualties in this war it could have been much worse. You imagine if we had had casualties even just on the scale of the second Iraq war where, I don't know, a few dozen people were dying each month. Yeah, just think, remember the backlash. This is more recent, so more people probably remember it. That Muhammad Hassan got after the terrorist attack started in London and after 9-11 and all those things where like, they basically had to ban the character and yeah. come out on screen and be like, you'll never see him again. Yeah, UPN said he will never, like, set foot on our programming again. Yeah, and, like, that's how serious that is. That's and because that wasn't people... even an attack against the United States. Yeah, that's just people are actually dying. Like, luckily, this was, like, a blitzkrieg total victory for the United States. But, look, it's this simple. There's a reason you don't see Vietnamese foreign heels. You can see the Germans. You can see the Russians. We won those wars. We won those yeah. conflicts. 
you don't see it when it's not hard, when it's hard and it doesn't work like that. You can't remind people of their unpleasant actual lives. Yeah, this show ends up being just kind of a wet fart business-wise. It does 400,000 pay-per-view buys, which is down substantially from the 550,000 the year before and nearly cut in half from WrestleMania 5 when they did almost 800,000 buys. That's with far less closed circuit and significantly expanded pay-per-view availability. They're doing, you know, almost half as many buys. Man, and... Just a collapse. And you can sit, like... Mostly the WWE is going to try to blame Hulk Hogan for this, it seems like. (laughs) And, like, it's not his fault. It really isn't. I... Yeah, I mean... just bad feelings stirred up by this. I mean, I think it's a mix of a lot of people were offended, but I think even more people just didn't really care. Yeah, that's the thing too. It, it didn't really stir anything into <laughs> yeah. the public consciousness. It didn't. It didn't appeal to actual wrestling fans. Like they didn't care. Um, the other big match <laughs> is Ultimate Warrior versus Randy Savage in a retirement match. So this, I mean, this storyline. Savage kept asking for a warrior for a title shot, and Savage turned it down. Warrior turned it down. Um, Sherry got on her knees. He told Warrior, please, Mr. Warrior, give Macho King his title match, and I'll give you anything you want. And what did Warrior say? No! No! Like... That is such a great scene with Sherry blatantly (laughs) basically saying, I'll suck your dick for a title match. And Warrior screaming at her so hard she physically falls backwards. (laughs) So Savage cost Warrior the title at the Royal Rumble. Warrior, I don't know whether, I assume Warrior challenged him to this match or it was just announced that they'll face off in the first ever retirement match in WWF history. And as far as I know, it was the first one. As far as I know, yeah. I mean, this wasn't really a common gimmick from those days, unless you set for Terry Funk. Yeah. Um, So the motivation behind this is interesting because Savage, they were not intending to actually have Savage retire here. I think he just wanted some time off because he was going to get off the roids and try to have a kid. I mean, I I just wonder... I just hate the idea of booking a retirement... Retirement imagine nobody actually retires. It's... And I mean, he'll... At the same time, Randy Savage's retirement is probably the best thing that could have happened for his career because this moment and the moment at SummerSlam, which doesn't require wrestling with him and Elizabeth, is probably the the most remembered things that he ever does. I hate the idea of booking a retirement match. If you're not, if you're not intending to keep them retired, at least for a while, Savage is back before the end of the year. This ends up being an eight month retirement. I just, you could make this match mean so much if you ever actually followed through on the gimmick. Yeah, that is a really good point. Though it, it must be said that this retirement is probably the best thing that happens to Savage's career at this point. Because on the, if you try to think of like the memorable moments of Randy Savage's career, like this and SummerSlam when he marries Elizabeth are probably two of the biggest ones. And so it, it is cool. And I think just 
I think part of the fact, the knowledge that he's going to retire is what helps him turn face with the fans. I don't know. It, it works, but I agree that it could be a lot bigger if you actually went with it. Yeah, I mean, but they're so hard up for stars that they can't afford to actually let him retire. Oh, God, yeah. In fact, they keep calling it back after he's actually sort of retired. Yeah, yeah. One of my one of the one of the things I find fascinating is the the, the never ending question of whether Savage wanted to retire or Vince wanted him to retire because different people say completely different things. I think at various points they both wanted it more than the other, and it just kind of went back and forth. And most likely that's the crux of the problem that happened between Vince and Randy Savage that caused the rift within them for years. It just resentment built up over years between the two over this, but I, I don't know. It, it certainly seems like Randy wanted to retire a number of times, but who knows? Yeah. A, a question that I think will never be answered. So to get into the show, it's Sunday, March 24th, 1991. We're at the Los Angeles Memorial sports arena in Los Angeles, California site of the final stretch of WrestleMania 2. We've got approximately 15,000 people in attendance for a $722,000 gate. That's the smallest gate since WrestleMania 1. They do a 2.8 buy rate for about 400,000 buys, sharply down. On the whole, the gross for this WrestleMania is the smallest since WrestleMania 4. Yikes. Yeah, just nothing, no, nothing good here. Just total disappointment on all fronts. Yep. We open the show with a classic Vince McMahon gravel voice intro. Hulk Hogan, Sergeant Slaughter, face to face. Hulk Hogan is America. He is a living American flag waving in the breeze. They bring out Willie Nelson to perform America the Beautiful. That's a pretty solid musical guest. Yeah, actually, it was really good. I liked it a lot. Um, still, yeah, a big step up. Did Who'd they have the year before this? Uh, Rock was it, and Robin. Uh, was it Robert Goulet last time? Oh, no, Robert that was five. Rock and Robin was five. Yeah, Robert Goulet was six, doing O Canada. That was pretty good. That was good. Um. And then for the opening match, we've got some weirdness. We've got Gorilla Monsoon on play-by-play, of course. Jesse Ventura, of course, has sadly left the WWF. In his place is Bobby Heenan as the color guy, but Bobby Heenan is still managing. So for this opening match, we've got Jim Duggan on color commentary. And oh boy, let me tell you right now that We've mentioned before that some wrestlers are not gifted at color commentary, even if they can cut promos. And if you ever heard a Jim Duggan promo and thought, God, I wish I could listen to a whole match worth of that, then this is the match for you. But man, does he suck at color commentary. Yeah, it turns out he was about as good on commentary as he was as a podcast host. Oh my God, he hosted a podcast? Yeah, him and Sean Mooney had a podcast. Fun time. That's so random. Sean Mooney's actually not bad. I, I actually I did not realize that Sean Mooney was around in the company as long as he was because he's been on so many of these WrestleManias now that I keep being like, man, I thought you were only here for like a year. He was really good at that thing he did. Yeah, you mean being the lame announcer who everybody yelled at? 
way better than Todd Pettengill. I can't wait until we get to the mid nineties and I get to bury Todd Pettengill. What an ass. Okay. We'll get there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so opening match, we've got the rockers against the barbarian and Haku, uh, the future faces of fear (coughs) WCW teaming up here in the WWF. Random. I mean, just two kind of Samoan ish guys being thrown together. It does seem weird because during this period, like Haku's never really getting pushed. But I he's don't just, know why, because he's awesome. He's just always around with other people who are getting pushed, like doing all their matches for them. Yeah. The Rockers are, of course, tag team specialists. They are really over here in their final WrestleMania match together. And Gorilla managed to not bury them, unless I missed it. He must have heard that they were breaking up, so he went easy on them. (laughs) Um, Rockers are in control until Barbarian hits them both with a flying clothesline. Uh, They pop right back up with a double super kick, though. Uh, Gennetti goes for a Hurricane Rana, but gets dropped across the top rope. Barbarian misses a splash. Gennetti makes the hot tag to Michaels. Uh, Gennetti hits a missile drop kick. Michaels follows up with a crossbody off the top rope for the pin. Thought this was a really good opening match. It was a really good opening match, though I have to say that I don't like the Barbarian. I will never like the Barbarian, and it will always be resentful of the fact that he actually got a for real push when Haku and the Warlord were just chilling on the sidelines doing jack and shit. Yeah. The one thing I want to bring up is like how weird the tag matches are on this show. So they've basically got four really good tag teams at this point. They've got the Rockers, the Heart Foundation, the Legion of Doom, and Demolition. None of those teams face each other. They all have matches on this show against teams we don't want to see them wrestle. Yeah, and almost none of those matches actually means anything. <laughs> how great would it have been to have the Heart Foundation against the Rockers? Oh. And... Demolition against the Legion of Doom. That's the big one. Does that match take place at some point? Yes, but not on a pay-per-view. Or what even the... on a... I don't even think they did it. Maybe they did a Saturday night's... I think they did a six-man tag on Saturday night's main event where it was like the LOD and the Warrior against all three members of Demolition. Because they were in that match at Survivor Series. It was perfect in all three demolition guys against the the warrior team warrior the road warriors and carry von eric see here's so the feud that happens but not on no, there's no big tv or pay-per-view match and here's the problem is like we've mentioned in other wrestlemania podcasts how like obviously this is a time where house shows ruled and those are the things you were aiming at but at this point we're well into the era of wrestlemania is the most important part of our year we're building everything to that to ha- the entire purpose of demolition was to be the legion of doom when you get the legion of doom that's obviously the match you have right seems like it but i don't know for some reason vince mcmahon is allergic to dream matches he hates them i think he just has a contrarian streak to him Maybe I, mean, just- I, th- I think the real problem is dream matches in this era require that you present someone from the other company on equal footing as your star and he has a hard time doing that as we'll cover with wrestlemania 8 next week yep um we go backstage where mean gene introduces our celebrities for the night uh regis philbin 
Marla Maples and Alex Trebek. I thought this was a pretty good trio of celebrities, actually. Yeah, uh, we've seen a lot of really crappy celebrities and try to actually do segments here. But Regis Philbin is somebody you could drop into any situation and he can make it charming. That's just what he does. And Alex Trebek actually did a great job with his segments. Like, I was very surprised at how much personality he had. Yeah. No, I agree. They went over fine. Um, Next match, we've got Dino Bravo against the Texas Tornado. Kerry Von Erich's lone WrestleMania appearance. How many years in a row do we have to cover Dino Bravo matches? I think this is it. Fuck. He doesn't. He doesn't live much longer after this. Okay. Well, that that's uh, that's kind of that's sad. That's kind of sad. At least this isn't a fifteen-minute Dino Bravo match. This is actually the first of on the show of matches that are basically TV squash matches. They've got just a get, bunch of these. Yeah, just against like higher profile people than you would see in a TV squash match. But that's basically what it is. Is in no other WrestleMania up to this point have we really had a twenty-minute match. On this show, we have two but no fewer matches. So like half of this card is squash matches. Yeah. How many matches on this show? Uh, 14. 15, uh, f- one, the, 15 including the dark match. Okay. Yeah. So they're just flying through these. This is a two-minute match. Bravo hits the side slam. Tornado kicks out. Tornado gets the claw and the tornado punch and wins in two minutes. I Nothing was to say about that. I was so struck by how much Kerry Von Erich looked like the Ultimate Warrior from behind. Yeah, because he's got the same build, the same hair, the same tassels on his boots. Man, they looked alike. Yeah, I'm, one, I'm kind of surprised they didn't make him cut his hair or change more of his look. And two, Kerry Von Erich could have been a gigantic star. If he, he could have been. Without the drug problem, I think he would have been one of the biggest stars in the world. Man, I, I think that maybe he could have been like the Hogan of the 90s. Like, it's very possible. He had charisma that was so intense. And, like, he was such a great worker, too. I, I've heard he was one of the few guys who Vince, when he was looking to go national, he ends up picking Hogan, but that Kerry Von Erich was one of the few guys kind of on the short list for that spot. I completely believe it. Like we could do it, we might do an entire show one day just on uh, WCCW and the the territory in Dallas. But like, no ter- small territory has ever popped like that one popped ever to the extent that uh, an entire territory almost went fucking global in the '80s, based entirely around one family, and Carrie was the top star. That's the level of charisma and ability to draw he had. Yeah, um, I. The entire Von Erich family is a gigantic what-if. Yep. Uh, next match, we've got the British Bulldog against the Warlord. Our man. Our um, dude. So I, th- I think we found out why the Warlord never gotten a, <laughs> got a big push in his pre-match promo when he had to open his mouth. Yeah, boy, that sucked. In the mask that he was wearing... Yeah, I, I don't remember the opera mask. I don't really understand like what the hell he was going for with the warlord thing. And it's very unfortunate, but I just, I also want to point out that like he's, his work is good in this match. This match surprisingly didn't suck. Yeah. Like I know you're just waiting for us to bury these two big steroid dudes. This was not a bad match. Not at all. 
Like yeah, a lot Bulldog of good power is, stuff. They're throwing each other around. Two big guys. They're bumping. Moving. See, here's the thing. These are probably the only two big guys in the company at this time who knew how to bump. Yeah. And, and they're bumping all over the place. I loved Warlord's style of bumping, where he was just like super stiff and would just like fall totally on his back like a turtle. I loved that shit. Yeah. Uh, the Warlord inducted into the Lawcast Hall of Fame. Absolutely. First ballot. I'm making new Warlord order shirts. <laughs> Uh, Warlord goes. This 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 is a match. They are fighting over who has a better full Nelson. Warlord goes to the full Nelson. As Gorilla points out, he doesn't get his <laughs> fingers locked together though. So technically, Bulldog does not break his full Nelson. No, no, he never got it cinched in. Bulldog escapes, hits the running power slam for the win. <laughs> you guys would proceed to feud all year, but I guess I can understand why because you know if they're going to put together a solid mid card match every time. Why not keep them together? Yeah, this works. I mean, Bulldog, like, he surprisingly always seemed to look better as a wrestler when he was facing people bigger than him. Like, he never really seemed to do, like, the big guy, small guy matches as well as you would expect somebody, like, as strong and muscular and able as he was. But I don't know, man. I, there's just something about this that clicks. Uh, next match, we've got the Hart Foundation defending the World Tag Team Championship against the Nasty Boys. Um, the Nasties called Brett Neidhart the stink and pink in their pre-match promo. I wonder if anybody in the office had any idea what that means. I don't think so. Because... I I think Vince would have considered that vile. That might be the dirtiest thing anyone's ever slipped into a promo on WWE. Uh, what did you think of Nightheart's pink beret and the Hearts jackets here? Bret Hart's always had really weird gear, kind of going all the way off into his like hockey jerseys and jean shorts later <laughs> on. But like you can see the formation of where he's eventually going to put together the look that works. And between the two of them, they almost have like one functional outfit. But like they're just wearing weird shit that makes no sense. Yeah, like jackets, like they're like wool and they have these pink tassels on the shoulders, not the cool leather jackets that Brett will sport once he goes single. Right. And Brett's sunglasses things will eventually be made out of an actual material, but here it looks like they're made out of aluminum foil that he shaped into glasses and it looks horrible. Nightheart's wearing a beret and it, we spend so much time focused in on Nightheart's face during this promo that it, it kind of made me ill. Yeah, Nightheart says the Nasties think they're going to shake the foundation. Well, they're not. And then Brett says something like, we don't think you're nasty. We just think you're scum. Baby faces. Yeah, they're trying. <laughs> uh, Brett and Nightheart dominate for the first five minutes. Nobs hits Brett with a big clothesline and the Nasties work him over. Uh, Brett dodges a corner charge and makes the tag, but the referee doesn't see it. Nobs tries to use Hart's megaphone, but he misses and hits Sags. We get the hot tag to Nightheart. The Hearts hit the heart attack. The referee goes to get Brett out of the ring. Sags hits Nightheart with the megaphone, gets Nobs on top, and the Nasties win the tag belts in an absolutely stunning upset. <laughs> I mean, this is the end of the Heart Foundation. 
Yeah, it was just it was just time for Brett to spread his wings. Yeah, it's sort of an ignoble end, but it is what it is. What did you think of the nasty boys here? I, you know, compared to what they would later be, I thought they were pretty good. They were more athletic. They were moving pretty well. Right. This isn't horrible. It, they just kind of arrived too late. Like the tag team renaissance is already over. There's really nothing for them to do. If they had arrived two or three years earlier, then they could have been a part of that whole thing. And they had a pretty good street fight against LOD at SummerSlam this year. For sure. They were brawlers at a time where they didn't really have that in the division. It could have added something, but there's nobody left for them to feud with, really. They'll be out of the company in a couple of years. Yeah. So, uh, as we said, this is the end of, end of the road for the Hart Foundation. They would mutually split after WrestleMania, which I think was a big part of Brett becoming a star that he didn't uh, have to feud with Nightheart and instead got to get the Intercontinental title from Mr. Perfect at SummerSlam. Though it's funny, because had they actually had a feud, that probably would have helped Nightheart a lot more than Brett. And in the meantime, what happens is Brett becomes a gigantic star and Jim Neidhart becomes who? 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 That, that's, that, that's the whole joke. Yeah. His name, his, his name is who? His name is who, yeah. You get it? <laughs> uh, blindfold match time. Okay, now this is one of the most legendary bad matches from this era. Uh, basically, the idea being that two people are wearing a blindfold for the in- or a bag over their head for the Has entire. Everybody come back around on this and realized it's actually good. Yeah. See, originally this was a match that everybody shat on as garbage, and like I had never actually seen it before. I just watched it for this. This is a good match. I loved it. Like, like the- it's weird, but it's just something different. They they come up with so many clever spots here. So like, the backstory is uh, Martel sprayed Jake in the face with his perfume. Jake was blinded in one eye. He wore a white contact to you know cover his iris, so it just looked like he had you know a fully white eye. So to even things out, they are going to wrestle with bags over their heads. And obviously, the bags are gimmicked and they can see through them. But Jake in particular does a great job of selling this like he can't see. Yes. Like, this is great. The The spots that Jake comes up with to get the crowd involved, like pointing vaguely across yeah. the ring until they cheer, the crowd is wildly into this. And they just build so much anticipation for when they even get close <laughs> to each other, the crowd starts going crazy. Oh, my God. And, like, they really don't do a move in this match for, like, five full minutes. Yeah. Uh, they really make the crowd want it. Um, yeah, they pop huge for Jake gets a hold of Martel's ankle. Like, they bump into each other from behind. Yeah, like, as a match, obviously, this isn't, like, stupendously great or anything. But, like, as a novelty, I think they could have shaved a couple of minutes off it and it would have been better. But, man, like, there's no reason to think that this is crap because this is a lot of fun had here. Yeah, there's a big drama when Jake gets thrown out of the ring and it's like, oh my God, how is he going to manage to get back in? It's actually kind of funny because if I had been in the crowd as a kid, I would have been freaking out like, no, he'll never find the ring again. Uh, Martel hits a backbreaker. He locks in the Boston Crab, but Jake powers out. Jake hits the DDT and I really love the way he, he hits the DDT and then he has to feel around to find him to cover him. Oh God, it's... 
Jake is so on top of this shit, man. Nobody else could have pulled it off like this. This is tremendous. Um, you know, a, a silly match, but I enjoyed it. I, I wouldn't do one of these matches on pay-per-view again, but as something random, on th- their character, the, the Miz could pull this off. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, now, let the record show that if you want to see a bad blindfold match, go to TNA, where James Storm and Chris Harris had one of the worst matches of all time, where the bags kept falling off. We go backstage to Marla Maples. She's trying to interview the Nasty Boys, but all of Jimmy Hart's other guys are pouring champagne on them in celebration. I thought this was great just because this really put over the tag belt. <laughs> Absolutely. And, like, it, and for once, they bother to put over like, hey, Jimmy Hart's whole stable actually hangs out and knows each other. Yeah, I think that's kind of cool. And also, like, I it's hard to imagine a champagne celebration today for somebody winning the tag belts. I agree. They don't mean they don't mean that much anymore. Like, oh yeah, champagne celebration for the New Day winning it for the eleventh time. Yeah, New Day did a milk celebration when they won the tag belts while they were heels. That was pretty great, actually. Yeah. Next up, we've got history as the streak begins. It's Jimmy Snuka against the Undertaker. Jimmy um, Snuka does not look like a human being. God, Jimmy Snuka. This comeback run was so terrible. We can chart this over the course of the last three WrestleManias. He comes back at five, gets a very <laughs> lukewarm reception. Then last year at six, he gets squashed by Rick Rude. And this year he gets squashed by The Undertaker. And I mean, good show by Jimmy Snooker. Like, hey, I'm going to get squashed. Fine. I'll let him do whatever. Like, he doesn't. Like, he works to put Taker over here. He takes good bumps and stuff. It's just like, man, you are not here for any reason. He did kick out of the tombstone at four. Everyone kicks out of everything on this show. And I'm going to have a big gripe about that later, but we'll just leave it here. Yeah, I mean, this it's it's a four-minute match. Taker you know, does his chokes and his clotheslines and stuff and then hits a stiff-looking tombstone for the win. No did problem see- with this. Did you see that moment where he had him up for the tombstone and then he kind of slips like Snooka does? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 don't do it. Yeah, that was heroin. (laughs) You know, off the top of my head, I don't know if Taker's ever really hurt anybody with the tombstone. I mean, aside from Coco saying he did the first time that he did it, I can't think of any time that he did. Just kind of amazing. I mean, he almost killed Roman Reigns last year. Yeah, well... And that's what's always worried me about Taker now that he's older. Like, look, he's not as strong as he was. Like, yeah. he just can't be. And, like, I'm and not we're sure. Trying to do stuff where he's, you know, reversing other moves and having to deadlift guys, just not capable of it anymore. Yeah, you just got to know your limits, man. You got to settle down with that. Um, so, next up, here in the middle of the show, we've got our career ending match Savage against Warrior. Uh, I mean, I know the show is built around patriotism, and you got to put Hogan in the main event. You got to have the WWF title in the main event, but this really should have gone on last. This is the main event. Simple yeah. as this is. It's not just the main event in terms of how big and impactful a match it is. It's also the main event in terms of this is what sends the fans home happy. Like, if you want to feel good into this show, this is it. The rules are the loser of the match will retire from the WWF, including if they lose by count out or disqualification. 
Uh, before the match, they cut to the crowd and show us that Elizabeth is in the front row. Uh, reappear, I think probably her first appearance since WrestleMania six. Which is, uh, that's kind of a really cool idea, is just to like foreshadow that something's going to go on just by having her in the audience. Because, yeah, I don't think she'd even really been mentioned on TV since the turn. Yeah, I mean, she was at WrestleMania six the previous year. Uh, managing Dusty and right. um, Sapphire, but maybe she did some house shows after this. But she's not; she had not really been around. Right. Um, Savage is brought to the ring on a throne along with Sherry, an awesome entrance, and then Warrior, instead of sprinting to the ring, walks to the ring and conserves his energy. There's something, something about the Warrior here is different. And I'm not saying I subscribe to the idea that Warrior died and he's been replaced by a low price replacement. But he's just a different... He's got a different vibe. He's got a little bit of a different look. And somehow he's great at wrestling. Yeah. Um, A a real upset. I mean, the previous year Hogan really carried him. Here, I felt it was more even. This is a great match. Like, it's not just a great match. We're sort of there's sort of a subtext storyline of us covering all these WrestleManias where we're eventually going to determine what the greatest match in the history of WrestleMania was. And we already kind of established that we don't believe it was Savage Steamboat. I think that to date of us watching these shows, it's this. I would definitely give this five stars. I, I think it's definitely on par with Savage and Steamboat. This I, think is... it's, I think it's got a much more coherent internal story. Agreed. Um, so Warrior on his tights has the WWF title airbrushed on the front and the back says means much means much more than this. Now, is that meant to mean that the title means more than this match or that this means more than the title? No, this means more than the title because it's okay. career on. They can't, can't be champion if you can't wrestle. That's that's a fair point. <laughs> um, yeah, Warrior is overpowering Savage, throwing him around the ring. Sherry gets in the ring, but Savage gets thrown into her. That sends Sherry to the floor. Savage gets Warrior with a kick and a clothesline. He goes for the double axe handle, but Warrior catches him. It looks like he's going to slam him, but instead Warrior just sets him down on his feet and slaps him across the face. Unbelievable moment. Oh, so, so great. Yes. Um. Heenan, this is the first time I felt like Heenan was really getting in his groove on commentary because this is the first time he's playing serious. He's just going going on and on, putting over this match. You lose this match, you wake up tomorrow, you've got nothing. No career, no money, no future, no legacy. Yeah, that was so good. And he's not even like rooting for Savage as the heel so much as he's just rooting for this match and putting it over, which is kind of a great moment because as good as Ventura was... He would only seldomly put over the match if it was so, so good that he had to without playing the heel factor. And like we haven't really mentioned Heenan's commentary on the show up to this point because really there's, I mean, he's kind of learning to get into that role. It's not as perfect and as smooth as it'll eventually get, but here he's perfect. Yeah. Savage throws Warrior to the floor and hits the axe handle. Sherry gets in some cheap shots while the referee's back is turned. 
And it's at this point that Gorilla claims that this is the largest audience in the history of pay-per-view. Yeah, about that. Really trying to put this over like a big deal. Now, it it could be said that this is the largest potential audience in the history of pay-per-view. It's probably available to more people than ever before. (laughs) Probably, because it just kind of grows every year. But Um, how the fuck would he know? Yeah, get those numbers you don't mid-show. Know this during the, yeah, where you call, yeah, apparently they were calling the pay-per-view providers mid-show, and they were being lied to about how many they had sold. <laughs> Do you remember the Bruce Pritchard explanation for this one? No. They were broadcasting it on the Armed Forces Network for free. Oh my god, are you serious? Yeah. yeah. Wow. There's a reason they call him a con man. <laughs> <laughs> That's so shitty. <laughs> um, uh, Warrior gets a small package for two. Savage spits <laughs> at the Warrior. Sherry distracts Warrior. Savage comes in from behind, but Warrior catches him with a clothesline. Warrior goes for a shoulder tackle, but misses. Then a double clothesline puts them both down. It's still a deliberately paced match. They're building in plenty of spots for Warrior to rest, which is right. just, it's just necessary. He can't work at a savage pace. And the good thing about Warrior is that he does so much of like the huffing and puffing, like pleading to the gods thing <laughs> that like he kind of covers when he's blown up, which he probably is for this entire match. Yeah. Um, Sherry distracts the referee. Warrior rolls up Savage and has him pinned. Once the referee turns around, Savage kicks out at two. Savage gets Warrior with a knee that knocks down both Warrior and the referee. Savage holds Warrior. Sherry comes off the top rope with her shoe, but Warrior moves and Savage gets knocked out with the shoe. Gotta, gotta, you gotta love when a woman pulls her shoes off in a wrestling you know match. It's getting serious. That's how you know she's mad. Yeah, Warrior gets distracted again by Sherry. Sherry was, I mean, you look at Savage's offense in the match. I think ninety percent of it was produced by Sherry. Sherry is the MVP of this match. She'll be the catalyst that drives the face turn at the end. She's providing all the offense. She even shows up later on this show. Like Sherry is really the MVP of WWF at this point. And she was looking really damn hot to boot. Oh, my God. Look, look, man. She was looking great tonight. Um, Savage holds Warrior. Savage slams Warrior. He hits the flying elbow. He hits a second flying elbow. He hits a third flying elbow. A fourth flying elbow. A fifth flying elbow. He hit his finisher five times in a row. And Warrior still kicks out of it. This isn't a time where near falls were really that much a thing. Like, obviously, in Savage Steamboat, they like. Savage is like the only guy who does it. He's like the only guy who's realized that this is a way to pop the crowd. Right. And this, like, he's sort of the forerunner. And this will eventually become like WWF style. But this is the most intense near fall I've ever seen. Like, who does their finisher five fucking times in a row? No, I've never seen that. I've never seen more than three other than this. And the idea that this somehow doesn't kill his finisher is a testament to both of them. Yeah. Uh, Warrior hits the press slam and the splash. Savage kicks out. And this is a very weird and interesting moment where Warrior is just... 
like stunned. He can't believe that this happened. I like, loved this. Like looking to the skies, asking the gods, like, why are you doing this to me? Because no one had ever kicked out of it. So the idea that he no longer had the power to finish somebody with his finishing move drove him so insane that he begins to leave the ring. He's going to quit and retire because he doesn't have it anymore. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, he gets out of the ring. He's going to walk out, but Savage, like an idiot, attacks him. <laughs> yeah. Had the match won, Randy, he was going to walk out and quit. I think even like Gorilla was like, oh, I guess that's one way to make his decision for him. <laughs> Yeah, you idiot. Uh, on the floor, Savage sets Warrior up for the axe handle with his throat across the guardrail. A callback to how he injured Ricky Steamboat back in 1987. Um, Savage comes off the top rope for the axe handle. Warrior moves and catches him with a shot to the gut, and Savage is just fucked. Like he's done at this point. One other thing: how were Savage's knees not just endlessly fucked? Because like all of his offense was jump from really high place, land on the floor. He did have knee problems later in his career. He had to have. It was insane. His whole thing was that. I mean, there's a. I mean, he was pretty much done by '99. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't that old, and he. I mean, like when he showed up in TNA, it just looked sad. Yeah, agreed. Um, the match is basically finished here, but Warrior really, you know, drives it in to finish him off. He hits one shoulder tackle, two shoulder tackles, a third shoulder tackle that knocks Savage through the ropes and down to the floor. Warrior drags his limp carcass into the ring, puts him down, puts his foot on his chest and pins him one, two, three. I mean, I if you looked at one way, this is an insane burial of Savage yeah. to have his finisher done five times and kicked out of, and then to be pinned with his foot on his chest. And That's yet, Savage. here's the thing is that while some people are so paranoid that they would never do this, Randy Savage does not come out of this buried. If nope. anything, he will come out of this whole thing more over than the ultimate warrior. No, I mean, I think he recognizes that it's actually kind of similar to what happened the year. Isn't this kind of what happened the year before with Hogan on steroids? Yeah. So this is literally just like ultimate warrior. You get to win, but we're going to show you the fuck up. Yeah. Now you'll see who the real star is when this is over. Yeah. So yeah, warrior celebrates a little bit, but he just kind of, you know, he's, he won his match. He's done. He's getting out of there. And then, yeah sherry gets in the ring she berates savage for losing you know slams his face into the canvas kicks him even heenan's upset by this is what puts it over like even heenan's like you know come on he did his best yeah like he had a hell of a match he did everything he he could have done like to have the heel announcer doing that really sells it And I mean, knowing what's going to happen, it's pretty obvious when the camera just keeps panning back to Elizabeth over and over and over again to get her reaction. But even with that, the moment where Elizabeth stands up and hops the guardrail, like I popped in my living room. I've seen this match 20 times. I mean, Elizabeth's been around for years at this point. She's never done anything physical. And she beats Sherry's ass. Oh, God. Can you imagine these matches? (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, 
yeah, she, you know, throws Sherry down, runs her off. Savage gets up. He's kind of disoriented. He doesn't realize Elizabeth's in the ring. He, you know, he's like, what are you doing here? You know, there's, there's a long moment of tension and then they embrace and the crowd just loses it. I, I need, when we talk about wrestling, it's so easy to be snarky. It's so easy to be cynical. It's so easy to make fun. It's so easy to do those things. I'm going to tell you full out right here, right now. I've seen this match 20 times. I probably teared up 20 times watching this segment. And it takes something away from it, understanding like the real life scenario. Like obviously, yeah. Savage and Elizabeth's real life was not great. That's that's my thing is I don't, I don't want to romanticize like their actual relationship because it does not sound even remotely healthy. Not even slightly. So, but Randy Poffo and Elizabeth Poffo, I assume, real life relationship, obviously a nightmare. But Randy Savage and Elizabeth, this is a magical moment. Like in they keep panning the crowd. And like there are other moments where they pay in the crowd and they're like, all right, we're not getting any reaction. There are people openly crying in the audience watching this moment. Yeah. Like there are women breaking down watching this happen. Yeah. I mean, it's a, this is a years long storyline. I mean, these two have been connected the entire time Savage has been in the WWF since he came in in 85. You know, he treated her like garbage and then, you know, he treated her well for a little while, but the pressure of being champion and his jealousy got to him and he snapped and he has this midlife crisis fling with Sherry, but you know, kind of cynically now that he's you know been defeated and lost everything, he's, you know, opening his heart again, but it, you know, it, it works. It's a years long storyline culminating. It absolutely works. And it's, and it's also sold a little bit by like, Randy Savage has probably never smiled on camera ever in WWE before this. No. That he's just a character who's all intensity and no joy. And here he's just grinning his face off and like lo gazing lovingly at Liz and hugging and kissing. Like it there's not only is it important as the character that he shows a complete difference at this point, but we've never seen anything like this on wrestling television before. There's no love stories in wrestling before this point. It, there was just this one. Yeah. Um, Savage gets her up on his shoulder and shows her off to the crowd. Same thing he did at WrestleMania 4. He holds the ropes for her, which is you know, the all-time Randy Savage babyface move. Oh, my God. What a pop when he does that, too. Yeah. And they ride off into the sunset together. Now, if he stays retired, like that's one of the all-time great moments in oh, WWE yeah. history, right? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, this is a little spoiled by the fact that spoiler alert, Savage wins the world title at the next WrestleMania. Yeah. But, but I mean, in between that, they have the SummerSlam where like the wedding happens and it, it's a great couple of months. It, it is just a shame that they had to do it like that. Yeah. So we then get, we get intermission after this. We get a bunch of interviews. Uh, Regis tries to interview the Undertaker, who's <laughs> taking his measurements for the coffin. This is hilarious. No, this is super good. This is also like the first time I think Undertaker said anything other than "rest in peace." He's you know, he's he's like fourteen, eighteen. Then oh. Trebek 
interviews <coughs> Demolition and Mr. Fuji. Uh, Axe is gone. This is just Smash and Crush. And I'm pretty sure Fuji called Tenru and Koji Katao Japs. He sure does. And then Trebek repeats it. <laughs> God, the casual use of that word. And if you thought that that was the only racism that there was to be had. Nope. Nope. <laughs> we next go to Regis interviewing Tenru and Katao. Of course, neither of them speaks English, quote unquote. So Regis just starts naming Japanese cars and they're like, oh, yeah. He's like, Honda, Toyota. Mitsubishi. And then they're like, Kathy Lee. Ooh, roll tide. Oh, boy. Now, here's the thing. Tenryu speaks great English. Yeah? Of course he does. He, he's the one who fucking sets up the deal with WWE. Yeah. Then we get an interesting spot where Trebek interviews Jake and Damien, and Jake is starting to turn heel here. Basically, the premise of this is Jake being like, Damien's a big fan of your show. He wants to know if he can be a contestant. And Trebek, to his credit, and I don't know if this was improv or what was planned, he just drops the microphone and runs away. <laughs> it was Proper pretty great. Response. Next up, we have one of the weirdest matches in WrestleMania history. Yep. As Jinchiro Tenru and Koji Katao team up against Demolition. So... This is part of, I believe, the WWF's working agreement with SWS, was it called? Yes, that's correct. SWS, which was a company that was formed by basically the biggest uh, eyeglasses manufacturer in Japan, uh, deciding that they wanted to get into the wrestling business and just throwing mad money at every major wrestler they could. But Tenryu was their top star. If you can believe it, that didn't work out. I hope it sure didn't. Um... So, Tenru is obviously a Japanese legend. Who is this jabroni Koji Katao? Okay, the legend that is Koji Katao. What a douchebag. Originally, Koji Katao was a sumo wrestler, and he was one of the few who have ever achieved the rank of Yokozuna, which is like basically the top person in sumo wrestling. Unfortunately, he is was one of the shittiest people ever to be named Yokozuna. And would eventually get banned from sumo wrestling because he not only went against his trainer, he like may have beaten his wife and like all sorts mm. of shit. So he gets banned from that. So he goes into wrestling. Where of course, he just, wrestling being the most disreputable, disreputable sport welcomes a banned sumo with open arms. Absolutely. And unfortunately for everyone in the sport, he still thinks oh. it's real and won't sell for anyone ever. That is his legacy. Yeah. Um, I rather than talk about this match, I want to talk about the earthquake match. Yeah, let's do that. So on a uh, super show in Japan, he wrestles earthquake and within about a minute or two, the match just breaks down and they're clearly not cooperating with each other anymore. And like, literally this is one of the most embarrassing matches of all time because I mean, they're both legitimate sumos. Like, John Tenta was a legitimate sumo. Yeah. It's not like anyone's going to, like, beat the shit out of each other or anything nah. like that. So they're just, they like, a slap fight. they just have a slap fight where, like, nobody's cooperating. And, like, basically the premise is you could never beat me, so I won't sell for you. <laughs> like, yeah, dude. Turns out Earthquake could have beat him because he waist locks his ass and rides him. Which is hilarious. Yeah, so 
uh, he does throw a few kicks and like clearly hurts Tento with them, but he's not ready to mix it up with the earthquake. So he ends up like kicking the referee and it's a disqualification and he bails out of the ring like a punk. Now let the record be shown that like Koji Katao in his early career is so notable for being an absolute asshole, no selling piece of shit later in life. He will have a complete redemption. Uh, He'll work with one of the things that he did in his early career was he made some Korean slurs about Ricky Choshu that didn't go over super well, but he'll basically apologize for all that, redeem himself, become sort of a legend. He gets to retire with pride at like pride number three or something like that. Like he's considered a legend in the mixed martial arts community. It's just kind of, hilarious that his legacy in america is the guy who wouldn't sell for earthquake yeah and got his ass whooped and who wrestled at wrestlemania yeah he doesn't sell shit in this match there is a nice power bomb for the win but that's pretty much the only highlight four minute match nobody cares demolition's done is it weird that demolition's the one who gets jobbed out here like i understand why they had to put tenryu and Kitao over but this is a squash match yeah, I, I I feel like they could have put him against anybody, but I mean, Demolition's just run its course at this point. Yeah. Poor Crush. Uh, yeah. Uh, he's got better things ahead. Like, doink. And then, pri- and then prison. Then prison. Uh, next Speaking up, of prison. Con- what? Speaking of prison, the big boss man. Yeah, that's right. We've got Mr. Perfect defending the Intercontinental title against the big boss man. Uh, Heenan is back managing here, so we get Lord Alfred Hayes on commentary. <laughs> oh, my God. Like this is, has not gotten any better. This is some of the better Lord Alfred Hayes commentary, if only because you don't really notice him the whole time. But he's just so bad at it. Yeah. It, I, I find it endearing how bad. Like, he brings this like class and dignity, but he's also just he can't say anything correctly. No, he's almost like a wide-eyed kid. Like he's the only person who believes it's real. Like, oh my goodness, boss man is going for the move. Oh, it did not work. Oh my goodness. Like, oh, Alfred, you so, care so much. Perfect. Flips his towel at boss man. Boss man catches it, wipes his ass with it, and throws it back at perfect. Best spot of the match. Yeah. Uh, there's some. I really liked this match. I mean, it's a perfect matchup because you got. Big boss man, giant over baby face, powerhouse, and perfect's just gonna bump his ass off for him. Yeah, and it's really good. Like I I, I kind of wish almost that Bossman had just plain old won this match because he's so over at this point. Yeah, well, he'd been doing this storyline where he'd been running through all of Heenan's guys to get to perfect. I think it would have been yeah, I think it would have been the right move to put the title on him here. Knowing that you can, you know, you need to get it back to perfect so perfect can lose it to Brett, but you got plenty of time to do that before SummerSlam. Right. <coughs> Just give Boss Man that moment because that's what it's all been leading to. Yeah. Um, perfect gets the advantage after Boss Man misses a corner charge. Um, while Perfect is getting the heat, Andre the Giant makes his way down to the ring. He is not not looking good. He can barely walk. It's really bad, guys. Like he does not look healthy at all. Like he's he's holding himself up on the ring apron. I mean, he's dead two years after this. 
it, it's really depressing to see, but he uh, he at least plays a part in this match, so at least he has like a, a happy ending. He hits Perfect with the IC title belt, which Perfect surprisingly kicks out of, and then Barbarian and Haku show up, and we've got a disqualification. Like, ew. Like, it's not good. It's not... Yeah. It's so deflating. Like, there's sometimes... As there are some people who say that disqualifications are automatically bad in matches and they'll always bury it if it's not a clean finish. I'm not one of those people. If it's the right time and the right place, absolutely go for it. But this is a deflating thing, and it kind of kills their storyline. Yeah, so Andre runs them off, and he and Bossman shake hands. <laughs> I believe this is Andre's final televised WWF appearance. He, I think so. Uh, he shows up on a WCW Clash of the Champions at some point in the next year or two, just like kind of out of spite for Vince not letting him wrestle. Yeah, he and Bruno both show up on. Bruno's major... got plenty of spite for Vince. I, I just love that. Like, hey, you got an axe to grind against Vince? Come on over. We'll put you on commentary. Uh, mean Gene interviews Donald Trump before the next match. He's there because his mistress, Marla Maples, is there. Uh, he says he wants WrestleMania back in Atlantic City. That, of course, never happened. Gene interviews Chuck Norris, then Henry Winkler, and then Lou Ferrigno. And it, it's kind of nice. Like, at least the celebrities here actually seem to know what wrestling is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next up, we've got Earthquake against Greg Valentine. Earthquake wins in three minutes with the sit-down splash. Nothing much to that. I think this is Greg Valentine's last WrestleMania match. God, I hope so. They, like, don't introduce him. They, like, do, like, a, like a package. He's a baby face at this point, which does not suit him. Let's say they put over, like, Earthquake in a package, and, like, Valentine's just there. Like, he's just Special Delivery Jones. Uh, next up, we get an LOD promo. They're facing power and glory tonight. But what are they going to be called when LOD's done with them? Sour and gory. Uh, this is a one-minute match. LOD wins with the Doomsday device. I, I think I feel like that Warrior Savage match probably ran long on time, and they're just flying through things at this point. I just... Yeah, I, I, I certainly can't blame them. Like, there's nothing. Just get through it, move on. Like, but it's you got to get these people on the card, right? It's important for people to come see Earthquake. Earthquake is somebody they've been pushing super hard. It's important for them to see the Legion of Doom. They're the next big tag team. I get it. It's just yeah. after the entrances are over, the match immediately ends, and it's like, what was the point? Next up, we've got Virgil against Ted DiBiase in the prelude to their. Much better match that we covered at SummerSlam 1991. Um, so Virgil stood up for himself at the Royal Rumble. Uh, he knocked out DiBiase with the Million Dollar Belt. Then he distracted DiBiase in a match against a jobber, which led to a count-out loss for DiBiase. Uh, Piper is out here on crutches managing Virgil. I think he had had real motorcycle accident and had an actual bad knee, which prevented him from wrestling on this show. 
I was going to ask, is he actually hurt or is he doing the best leg selling that anyone's ever done in wrestling history? And now I think this is the real deal, which makes it impressive that he actually gets this knee worked over during this match. Like Piper, if this is a real injury, Piper is legitimately walking on an injured knee without crutches a bunch and gets it destroyed by the million dollar man. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Would, um, would they have done Piper against DiBiase here if he had been healthy? I, I think it's always Virgil versus DiBiase. But, Probably. And, like, it's a great storyline. The fans are yeah. super into it. It's a big yeah. deal. This is a good match. Their match at SummerSlam is better. Way better. Yeah. Um, you know, Virgil sticks and moves. <laughs> he gets DiBiase with the jabs. DiBiase takes over. Pile driver, power slam. Uh, DiBiase kicks Piper's leg out from under his leg. Uh, Piper recovers enough to use his crutch to pull the rope down on DiBiase. And that's where DiBiase gets counted out. Virgil wins. Uh, you know, not terrible, but not, not on the level of what they would do in a couple months at SummerSlam. No, obviously you need that clean finish to kind of finish off this and he would eventually get it. Um, there is a really weird moment at the end of this where like Piper's obviously down selling that his knee has just been destroyed. And then Virgil comes in the ring and just starts screaming at him to stand up on his injured <laughs> leg, not helping him or anything. And then the fans are like, yeah, stand up Roddy. And so he stands up on his shattered knee. Like, no, you're not a physician. Don't tell him to do that. Also, Sherry joins up with DiBiase. I don't really remember much from that parent. Also, he at some point she has at some point found a, the opportunity to change into a full wedding dress, and then while sure. she, and then while she's beating Roddy's ass, her wig falls off, which is great. Yeah, like if a woman's ever beating you so bad her wig falls off, she means it. Uh, next up, we've got the Mountie against Tito Santana. It's a one-minute match. The Mountie wins with the cattle prod. God, there are a lot of squashes on this show. Poor C. Tito Santana. And like his streak of like consecutive WrestleManias is so inflated with squash matches. Yeah. Um, next, we get a Hogan interview, kind of disappointingly sane compared to the last couple years. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, I mean he he does throw in some some oh say can you see <laughs> Sergeant Slaughter I'll be the new WWF champion and you'll just be a victim of Twilight's last gleaming. I don't know. Does he think Twilight's Last Gleaming is some sort of weapon? Or well, he's also got the Patriot missiles ready, brother. This is the Hulkster of 1991. The Patriot missiles. Yeah, he's taken to the air. He's coming <laughs> from the sea. You know, <laughs> it's. I, I really wish I didn't feel this way because obviously I'm not a huge Hulk Hogan fan, never was, and he's a horrible human being, and we can just get to that at a later date. But watching these early WrestleManias, I'm like against my will becoming you a really, fan of Hulk Hogan. You, you really have. I mean, how can you not? He's, he's just so good. Yeah, like I mean, he is the. I mean, there's a reason he was the most over wrestler of the '80s because he's the perfect '80s wrestler, and he's just. He's so passionate all the time and he means it and he nails it. And like the fans fucking love everything that he does at this point. You can absolutely see how he would develop the world's biggest ego because he could do no wrong. So we got celebrities out for the main event. Trebek is the ring announcer. 
Maples is the timekeeper. Regis jumps in on commentary. I thought he did a pretty good job as the third wheel. Absolutely. Um, Slaughter doesn't have a ton of heat here, I felt. No. The fans do not care about Slaughter. Yeah. I, which I, is I mean, I, with the war being over, kind of, yeah, who cares? And yet they continue with this storyline for months. I mean, don't they do something with this at SummerSlam? Yeah, it's um, Warrior and Hogan against uh, Slaughter and Ednan and Mustafa. Uh, yeah. And, like, Ednan is so bad at this. Like, he's just so ill-fitting, despite the fact that, like, he's literally is, like, an Iraqi person, right? He's an actual friend of Saddam Hussein's. Yes. Like, the pictures of him and Saddam they showed were real. That's so fucking crazy. But the problem is, he's not very good at wrestling or being in a ring or cutting a promo. Yeah, he's just meant to be a manager. But, I mean, I I assume he spoke English, but they just have him yell in Farsi. I mean, there's a reason they add Sheiky Baby to this pretty soon. Yeah. Um, he probably could have used Sheik in his corner here just to give him some more muscle. Okay. this Is this the most boring WrestleMania main event? Uh, I mean, there's Sid and Hogan the year after this, and Sid and Undertaker at 13. I just mean up to this point, like what we've covered thus far. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, this match feels like it goes on forever. Just long, lots of really long holds. Like, they're just they're working heat, but there really isn't a whole lot of heat. Slaughter complains to the ref about his hair being pulled like five <laughs> okay, times. That, that, that I always love. The you didn't have no any hair. hair. Yeah. Um, uh, <coughs> there's multiple blatant chair shots in front of the referee that don't result in disqualifications for some reason. Yep. Um, Slaughter just works on Hogan's back. Hogan does actually go up to the top rope, trying that, that aerial attack, but gets thrown off. Yeah, it's so funny too because if this if Hulk Hogan was around today, he would have started doing like top rope spinning leg drops in big matches by this point. Yeah. Um, instead, he just takes the flare bump off the top rope. Oh yeah. Uh, Slaughter locks on the Boston Crab. Perhaps we should call it the Baghdad Crab. The Baghdad Crab. Slaughter hits a knee drop from the top rope. Turns out he's the one who's mastered the aerial attack. I guess. <laughs> um, he's got Hogan pinned, but Adnan gets up on the apron and distracts the ref for some reason. For, like, I was this... I don't know. Something <laughs> makes me think that there was... Slaughter gets a visual pinfall over Hogan here. I feel like... Hogan lost the torch here. <laughs> I feel like Savage or that Slaughter did not want to do a job here. Like, I just seriously get that impression. Because not only does that happen, so it looks like Slaughter could have won, but Slaughter kicks out at three and at the end of this match. At three. <laughs> yeah. That was very... Qu- I mean, I... That's interesting. I, maybe they're trying to keep him strong. I don't. I, I mean, they have to keep him strong because he's got to continue to wrestle Hogan for the next six months. They didn't keep Savage strong. No, that wasn't important. Oh my god! Um, Slaughter hits another chair shot, and Hogan blades. 
Now, do you um, think that they always plan for Hogan to blade, or is Hogan just like, man, the fans don't give a fuck. I better blade. I mean, did he just bring a razor blade out with him just in case? I, I don't know. I don't know if they just always have one with the referee just in case, <laughs> or what? They should probably always have one just in case. Let us say, the in case of emergency, take this out of your tape emergency yeah. plan. In case your match is bombing. It doesn't help. Um, no, it doesn't really do anything. Uh, Slaughter locks on the camel clutch, but Hogan powers out. Hogan hulks up, leg drop, one, two, three. Thank God we got through that. Uh, it's just so rotten. And for this to be the way the show ends is so disappointing because I liked this show. If they reverse and this show goes off the air with Liz on Savage's shoulder, it's such a better remembered show, I think. The first half of the show was really good. The second half was pretty much irredeemable. Agreed. Um, oh, man. <coughs> so, yeah, uh, we get Hogan waving the American flag, wiping his bloody face on the American flag. That was weird. You can't yeah. do that. That's defacing the flag. It for real is. You're getting so much trouble. Thankfully, this WrestleMania is brought to a close. <sighs> I mean, just one of the most one. I mean, off the top of my head, probably the most disastrous WrestleMania in company history. Like, oh, absolutely. There's some other WrestleManias that didn't do good business, but none that I feel like actively hurt the company like this did. And I kind of feel like after this, it's a long time before they really start taking risks with things again. Like they kind of go way more conservative throughout the nineties. It's Except, until, yeah, until they absolutely nine. have to. Yeah, nine is weird. But like until the money comes back, they never really try to do anything like this again. Yeah, I mean it just <laughs> winter has arrived at this point. Like it's clear the I think it's clear the good times are over. Oh god. By the time we get to next year, we will be fully into the who the fuck are these guys and why are they here era. Yeah, I just with drug testing, sex scandals, and then this self-inflicted wound, they're just headed straight downhill. Absolutely. They're going to start shedding stars like crazy. Warriors done like right after SummerSlam. Like it's all going to come crashing down. Yeah. Next week, we get to cover one of my favorite WrestleManias with WrestleMania 8. We've got so much to talk about. We've got Sid in the main event. We've Sid. Got, we've got the eternal question of why the main event wasn't Hulk Hogan versus Ric Flair. The one that probably the most asked question of Ric Flair's career is why he never main evented a WrestleMania with Hulk Hogan. Then we have another contender for greatest match in WrestleMania history between Savage and Flair. And the epic intercontinental title match between Piper and Bret Hart. And let's not forget the beginning of singles Shawn Michaels, the debut of, of Tatanka, who is one of my favorite wrestlers of all time, and Skinner. Yeah. And Skinner. We've got all that for you next week.